Please join me now in prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply the word to our hearts and open our eyes to the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the great sacrifice he made while we were yet sinners. In his name we pray. Amen. A gospel reading from Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 24, the gospel of the Lord. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. I had never been so offended in all of my life. I was boiling with rage that I should have to read such backward, hate-filled garbage in a public school of all places. I was in the 11th grade. And as part of my American literature class, we had had to read a sermon by someone of the name of Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an angry God. And I had just been in the process of coming from a background in atheism to believe that there was a God, a good God, a God who designed all things, a God who, who stood behind this, this skin of space and time in which we inhabit this brief lifespan. And yet here was a theologian from the 1700s describing a God that I could not recognize, a God that to me looked like a monster or an ogre, a God who dangled poor sinners like a spider above a flame, ready to drop them at any moment. I was livid. There is no more disturbing Christian doctrine than the doctrine of eternal judgment, what we commonly call hell. We're going to look at a passage and try to grapple with with what this Christian doctrine really is and what its implications are. It's 2 Thessalonians, Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. This is uh, God's Word. I'll be reading in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Follow along as we read the mail of St. Paul to the Christians. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, 
because your faith is growing more and more and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God, who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. There is no more disturbing Christian doctrine than the doctrine of hell. Even R.C. Sproul, staunch, stodgy, conservative, Calvinist, Presbyterian theologian, said that if there was one biblical teaching that most disturbed him, it was this one. I mean, just look at how offensive it was to me as a young, newly budding theist in the late 1980s. But admittedly, when I look back, I realize I had a very distorted view of the Christian teaching on hell. I had always pictured it, and even when I read Edwards, I pictured it as God hurtling sinners down into a fiery pit, getting His throwing arm really strong and powerful and you know, casting the sinner down as they say, please have mercy, forgive me, and He yells, it's too late, now you're going to burn. You know, pitchforks with devils stabbing people forever. The Bible nowhere says there are devils punishing people in hell. They go there as victims, not as victimizers. But, but you know, we, under, we misunderstand the nature of what it is that we're talking about when we picture it as a place with devils and pitchforks or, or a sadistic God delightfully casting people who desperately want to be saved to their destruction. What we read here in St. Paul's description of eternal judgment is this in verse 9 and verse 10. They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. I want you to think about that. Humanity in the biblical story was created to live in fellowship with God. Quorum Deo, before the face of God, reflecting God's likeness, imaging His glory and majesty, uh, made to live in His presence, designed to inhabit one space within which humanity could thrive, the space of fellowship with the One in whose image we were made, that we would flourish in His presence, reflecting His divine glories, continually receiving life and love and wisdom and goodness and intimate union with Him. And then you imagine what Paul is describing when he talks about being shut out from that presence. You know, in this life, even, even as a staunch atheist uh, in my youth, 
I still nevertheless enjoyed something of what theologians call common grace, where Jesus said that God sends the sun and the rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous uh, alike, continually restraining evil within us, not ever giving us quite enough rope to hang ourselves. God, you know, protecting his image in humanity. And I remember as a young Christian, as I started to understand the notion of hell as being shut out from God's presence, I would say to people when they objected, I would say, don't worry, it's just being cast out from the presence of God forever. And I wasn't thinking through what that meant. The implication, the gravity being made for communion with God, having our humanity grounded in His presence that we might thrive and flourish and then to lose that presence to lose our ability to flourish, our ability to thrive, our ability to give and receive love, to lose so much of what humanity was intended to be, even, even just the thought of stripping away common grace, to be so far removed from the presence of God that humanity, what, what do we become? We can only speculate about what happens when we're ripped apart from that only singular environment in which we were designed to thrive. We would lose so much of our humanity and it helps explain something of the complex biblical imagery that's used to describe the place of final judgment. Jesus speaks of an outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It speaks to Darkness speaks to loneliness, to the lack of warmth, the lack of love, the lack of, of light. Here in this passage, it's, it's, it's called everlasting destruction in verse 9. Destruction is an image of, of total waste, of total loss. Like when Jesus speaks of those who gain the whole world and yet lose their very soul, or in the Greek, they lose their very self. To lose your very identity. Jesus describes it as fire. Fire is something that we think of it as something uh, that inflicts pain, but in the ancient world, fire is how you destroyed your garbage. It was an image of something that disintegrates the person. We can see it in this life in some of those around us. The way self-centeredness brings about a, a dissolution, a disintegration of people that we care about. You look at, you look at a narcissist and you see the way narcissism twists and distorts the world in which they live. You see the paranoid delusion. You see their confusion about what's actually true in their never-ending drive to be important. The opposite happens on a spiritual level as, as one's soul disintegrates. Uh, the grip on reality disintegrates. Our very humanity can disintegrate before our eyes as we become paranoid and fearful and manipulative and angry and bitterness and enraged and, and we then start lashing out at others. We start lashing out at our friends. You see it with addictions. When someone you love is overcome by an addictive disorder and you, you see what starts to happen to them. The soul seems to disintegrate. The, the more and more it gains its grip, the, the less and less you see of the person you once knew and that you still love. You see them less and less satisfied, less and less flourishing, blaming other people, wallowing in self-pity. The self-absorption takes hold. They 
bite the hand of any friend that would be kind, any family member that, that might threaten the addiction because it is taking over and there is less and less of the human being made in God's image who you love and would die for. And more and more of this monster that is an enemy that is crippling them. We've all seen it. Look at the story that Jesus gave of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, a rich man. Uh, Lazarus and this rich man. The rich man is cast into hell. There's a great gulf between him and others. So he asks Father Abraham, please send Lazarus, my, my servant, my slave, down to hell with me so that he can mop my brow and, and give me water and take care of my needs. Is it not shocking that he's not asking to get out? He's asking that his slave be brought in with him. So amazing, shocking lack of love or even a desire to escape. And yet what's particularly troubling is that in the parable as Jesus tells it, this poor victimized slave named Lazarus, he still has a name. His name is Lazarus. He's made in God's image. He is, he is a man made by God who still has an identity as a human being named Lazarus. And the rich man's name is Rich Man. Because that's all that's left. The thing he built his identity on, the thing he chased after his entire life, it's all that's left. He's lost his very name. He's lost his very self, as Jesus says. He's lost his soul. Hell is a trajectory of the soul that begins in this life. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself, he writes, and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. In his fictional novel, The Great Divorce, Lewis compares hell to, to the ever-expanding suburbs of mid-20th century London. Hell is described as a, a gray town where people are constantly moving further and further out because without the, the ability to give and receive love, they can't stand each other. So they're moving further and further and further away from each other. Few even realize that they're living in hell. In many ways, their experience is the same as it had been while on earth, seemingly meaningless, joyless, lonely, uncomfortable, and they continue on that same trajectory they began while on earth, but now without common grace, without even God's minimal presence, the seeming meaninglessness of this life just projects forward into eternity. If you can imagine all of your anxieties and all of your fears and all of your insecurities continuing in the same direction to eternity. And they continue on the trajectory in Lewis's vision of hell. All that's left is the grumble. The narrator at one point finds himself waiting at a bus stop because evidently there's a bus tour of the foothills of heaven that you can do uh, if you want from hell. And he's waiting at this bus stop. And, uh, and so he asks, hey, what about the earlier arrivals? I mean, there must be people who came from earth to your town 
even longer ago. Well, that's right, there are. They've been moving on and on, getting further apart. They're so far off by now that they could never even think of coming to the bus stop at all. Astronomical distances. There's a bit of rising ground near where I live, and a, a chap a chap has a telescope. You can see the lights of the inhabited houses where those old ones live millions of miles away, millions of miles from us and from one another. Every now and then, they move further still. That's one of the disappointments. I thought you'd meet all these interesting historical characters, but you don't. They're too far away. Well, they would they get to the bus stop in time if they ever set out? Well, Theoretically, but it'd be a distance of light years, and, and they wouldn't want to by now. Not those old chaps like Tamerlane and Genghis Khan or Julius Caesar or Henry V. We wouldn't want to. That's right. The nearest of those ones is Napoleon. We know that because two chaps made the journey to see him. They'd started long before I came, of course, but I was there when they came back, and about 15,000 years of our time it took them. We've picked out one of the houses by now, just a little pinprick of light in the sky that nothing else near it for millions of miles. But they got there? That's right. He built himself a huge house, all in the Empire style. Rows of windows flaming with light, though it only shows as a pinprick from where I live. Did you see Napoleon? That's right. Uh, they, they went up and they, they looked through one of the windows. Napoleon was there, all right. Well, what was he doing? Walking up and down, up and down all the time, left, right, left, right, never stopping for a moment. The, 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 the chaps watched him for about a year and never, he never rested. He muttered to himself all the time, it was Sult's fault, it was Ney's fault, it was Josephine's fault, it was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English, like that all the time, never stopped for a moment. A little fat man, and he walked, looked kind of tired, but he didn't seem able to stop. It begins with a grumble. It begins in this life. It's a trajectory of the soul. A life spent avoiding God becomes a trajectory into eternity, a flight from God. They were shut out from the presence of God. And ultimately, yet tragically, if Lewis is right, everybody gets what they want. Remember Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man never asked to go into the presence of God. In Lewis's vision of hell, there's a, a bus tour to the foothills of heaven that some choose to go on. And, and as the narrator waits patiently at the bus stop, you know, conversing with those around him, the others present are grumbling, they're complaining, they're criticizing. Many of them eventually walk away in disgust before the bus even arrives. Uh, but it eventually does arrive. There's an angel driving the bus who shields his face the entire time. And when they reach heaven, they find that their bodies are not acclimated to heaven. As the bus veers upward through the sky and into the bright sunlight that lies beyond the gloomy clouds that surround the city below, they approach heaven, and as they do, their, their bodies become increasingly gaseous, non-solid, while the world around them becomes more and more real, 
more and more alive, more and more solid. And so these ghosts in their bus tour of heaven experience a world that's stunningly beautiful, but within which they are no longer capable of existing. Every blade of grass is so real and so hard that it cuts and slices and they recoil in pain just upon touching it. A single leaf is so heavy heavy that they cannot even lift it. And they begin to beg to return to the city below. But their old friends come out to meet them, shining and gleaming brightly as spirits in heaven. They beg them to repent. They beg them to come into heaven. And yet one by one, the tourists from hell choose to return whence they came. Their excuses are as shallow as their thin apparitions. One artist refuses to enter heaven because he must preserve the reputation of his school of painting. A bitter cynic predicts that heaven must be a trick. A man named only Big Man refuses to go in because he sees people in heaven of a lesser social rank than himself. Those who in this life want God, who seek Him, gain Him, and yet those who passively or actively avoid God enter into a trajectory that continues. C.S. Lewis says it this way, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, He says, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. So does belief in Christian doctrine of hell make one a narrow person? You say, Greg, why would you want to believe a doctrine like that? And it's a fair question, but it's a question that assumes something. It assumes that I want to believe in this doctrine. Um, I don't want to believe that the Nazis in the 1940s murdered 9 million people. I believe it because it's true. I don't want to believe that I'm going to die someday. I believe it because it's true. I don't want to believe that humanity has a 100% fatality rate but I accept it because it's true. It's not a question about what one wants to believe. It's about what's actually uh, true. Uh, if you could imagine, if you will, you and a friend wake up in a labyrinth and you have no idea how you got here. You don't know if somebody drugged you, knocked you out, if you were abducted by aliens. You have no clue. You're in this labyrinth and you're trying to find a way out and there is no way out. You're going through it and you don't know how you got there. It's all confusing. But finally you come to an alcove and in the alcove there is a table like a, a stone altar and on that stone altar there is a flask of some bubbling gaseous green liquid fumes coming out and on it a pristine post-it note that says drink me and you and your friend you're like well this is different seems familiar and and you look at it and you're like okay I ended up here I don't know how I got here somebody put me here somebody put this thing here this does not look safe this does not look like a, a safe situation I don't know if some crazy person has set this up so that they can get some pleasure out of um, some kind of snuff film and your friends like nah it's just a joke I'm sure it's nothing now are you being more narrow for not wanting to drink the potion because you think it's dangerous 
And is your friend being more open and honest and intelligent by thinking, oh, it's nothing, let's drink it? Um, there are issues of fact. There's issues of reality. If it really is a poison, you're not being narrow and the stakes are really, really high. It's not narrow-minded to assess a danger. And given the stakes, caution might be the wiser. Consider what it is we're talking about. Um, when we discuss even the concept of God, we aren't talking about the Easter Bunny. We're talking about an entity that, if it exists, is terrifyingly bright and terrifyingly vast. Um, you know, you say, Greg, I don't know that I believe in a God like that. Well, perhaps, but, you know, do you believe in the sun? If you look and stare at the sun intently, it is going to fry your eyeballs and destroy them because your eyes cannot bear the light. How about the God who made the sun, who made a billion stars much brighter? How bright do you think such an entity must be to fuel all of that? In the Bible, God said to Moses, no one can look upon me and live. We speak of the vastness and the immensity of God. We speak of the glory of God, which, which speaks to his weightiness. I mean, if you could imagine realistic situation, imagine you are walking through Concordia Park over by Caldi's, uh, Martin Luther statue at the top of the hill, trees everywhere, you're walking along, and then, you know, suddenly, out of nowhere, a full-grown African elephant falls out of a tree on top of you. I know. But what's going to happen to you? There's no way you're going to survive because your weight cannot bear the weight of an African elephant. Your last thought is not going to be, oh, I wonder how an African elephant got into a tree across from Caldi's in Concordia Park. No, you, you're going to know that you are doomed because you cannot bear its weight. Uh, think of the observable universe. Nine point, uh, 91 billion light years across. Uh, to give you an idea of how big that is, a light year would be you taking the circumference of the Earth, which is a little less than 25,000 miles, laying it out in a straight line, multiplying that by 7.5, which is the corresponding distance that gives you one light second, and then you place 31.5 million of similar lines end-to-end, -end, and with that total, you lay 91 billion of those end-to-end, -end, and that's just what we can see of the universe God has made. It is massive. We are not talking about a nice story about a man upstairs who's there to give us comfort. This is either real or it's, it's not. And if there is any chance that there is an intelligence behind this universe's space and time, this infinite and immense terrifying being uh, is, would be so much more than any of us have dreamt of in our theology. You know, we, we don't know exactly what we're dealing with. We, we know what God has revealed to him to, about himself. Uh, all of that in his, his word is, is, is absolutely true and life-giving and, and is our connection to the divine. And yet, everything God has shown about himself is a glass of water and God himself is a vast ocean. Just look at the immensity of what he has made. The brightness of the stars. We can't comprehend what we're dealing with, but think about it for a moment. Can you be so certain that such an intelligence does not exist behind, beneath, within, or beyond this universe of space and time. Friends, what if it's all true? This is the last Sunday in Advent. Traditionally, the last Sunday in Advent is when you get to the bad news to set you up on Christmas Eve to consider the good news. What if it's true? 
I read a 2014 journal article. You can find it on the website of the National Institutes of Health. It was by Dr. Bruce Grayson, MD, in which he discusses scientific research into what the literature calls distressing near-death experiences. We don't know exactly what's happening with a near-death experience. There are all sorts of theories about it, but Grayson is the Chester F. Carlson Professor of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences and the Director of the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He explains his findings. He said, in some near-death experiences, features usually reported elsewhere as pleasurable are perceived as hostile or threatening. A man thrown from his horse found himself floating at treetop height, watching emergency medical techs working over his body. No, no, this isn't right, he screamed. Put me back. But they didn't hear him. Next, he was shouting. He was shooting through darkness toward a bright light, flashing past shadowy people who seemed to be deceased family members waiting. He was panic-stricken by the bizarre scenario and his inability to affect what was happening. He continues, a woman in childbirth felt her spirit separate from her body and fly into space at tremendous speed. And then she saw a small ball of light rushing toward her. She says, it became bigger and bigger as it came toward me. I realized that we were on a collision course and it terrified me. I saw the blinding white light come right to me and engulf me. A woman collapsed from hypothermia began re-experiencing her entire life. She says, I was filled with such sadness and experienced a great deal of depression. Other near-death experiences are what are classified as avoid experience, an ontological encounter with a perceived vast emptiness, often a devastating scenario of aloneness, isolation, sometimes annihilation. He writes, a woman in childbirth found herself abruptly flying over the hospital into deep, empty space, a group of circular entities informed her she never existed, that she had been allowed to imagine her life, but that it was a joke, that she was not real. She argued with facts about her life and descriptions of Earth. They said, no, none of that ever happened. None of that was real. This is all there ever was. She was left alone in space. Another woman in childbirth felt herself floating on water, but at a certain point, she writes, I was no it was no longer a peaceful feeling. It had become pure hell. I had become a light out in the heavens, and I was screaming, but no sound was going forth. It was worse than any nightmare. I was spinning around, and I realized this was eternity. This is what forever was going to be. I felt the aloneness, the emptiness of space, the vastness of the universe, except for me, a mere ball of light screaming. One woman who attempted suicide, he writes, felt herself sucked into a void. She wrote, I was being drawn into this dark abyss or tunnel or void. I was not aware of my body as I know it. I was terrified. I felt terror. I had found, I experienced nothingness. I expected the big sleep. I expected oblivion. And I found now that I was going to another plane and it frightened me. I wanted nothingness, but this force was pulling me somewhere I didn't want to go. I never got beyond the fog. A man who was attacked by a hitchhiker himself uh, felt himself rise out of his body. He writes, I suddenly was surrounded by total blackness, floating in nothing but black space, with no up, no down, left or right. What seemed like an eternity went by. I fully lived in this misery. I was only allowed to think and reflect. Other experiences are more distressing. 
A man in heart failure felt himself falling into the depths of the earth, and at the bottom was a set of high, rusty gates, which he perceived as the gates of hell, and he was panic-stricken and managed to scramble back up into the daylight. One woman was being escorted through a frighteningly desolate landscape and saw a group of wandering spirits. They looked lost and in pain, but her guide indicated she was not allowed to help them. One university professor, an atheist, with uh, an intestinal rupture experienced being maliciously pinched and then torn apart by malevolent beings. A woman who hemorrhaged from a ruptured fallopian tube reported invo- uh, experiencing, quote, horrific beings and gray gelatinous appendages grasping and clawing at me. The sound of their guttural moaning and the indescribable stench still remain 41 years later. There is no benign being of light, no life video, nothing beautiful or pleasant. Finally, a woman who attempted suicide felt her body sliding downward into a dark, cold, watery environment. She wrote, when I reached the bottom, it resembled the entrance to a cave with what looked like webs hanging. I heard cries, wails, moans, gnashing of teeth. I saw these beings that resembled humans with the shape and head of a, bo- of, of a head and a body, but they were ugly and grotesque and they were frightening and sounded like they were tormented or in agony. I'm no scientist. I can't explain what happens in the moments of death with the random firing of neurons and all of that. My PhD is in historical theology. But the data, the scientific data, is disturbing. What if it's real? It's a disturbing thought. So where is there hope, friends? Where do we find hope? I want you to consider the only one who experienced the full sufferings of hell and came back to tell us it is finished. Most biblical references to hell are from the lips of Jesus Himself. Jesus is is the one who in Luke 16 describes the great chasm over which none may cross from there to us. Jesus is the one who in Matthew 25 tells of a time when people will be separated into two groups, one to eternal life, the other one to eternal fire. Jesus is the one who in Mark 9 uh, speaks of a place where the worm does not die, who speaks of hell as a place of eternal torment in Luke 16. Jesus is the one who in Matthew 13 speaks of people there gnashing their teeth in, in anger and frustration and suffering. Jesus is the one who says that there is no return, not even to warn loved ones in Luke 16. Jesus is the one who in Matthew 25 calls it a place of outer darkness. Jesus is the one who compares it to Gehenna in Matthew 10. Gehenna being the garbage, uh, uh, the, the garbage valley in which the Israelites burned their trash. Almost every single thing we know about hell in the Bible, and it's not much, Conflicting images that all speak of a place we don't want to be. Almost everything we know about it is from the lips of Jesus. Uh, he shows more concern than anyone else to warn us about this. It seems often to have been on his mind, particularly when speaking with religious people, who he seemed to think were the ones most likely to land there. Why would it be? that this would be so present in the front of his mind unless it were something that he himself were about to experience and experience for our sake. When you see Jesus go into the, the Garden of Gethsemane preparing to face 
the judgment of God on the cross. He cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which in Aramaic means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you think God really forsook Jesus? You better believe it. And because of that, He will never forsake you if you follow Christ. If you believe in Him, there has been a great exchange, friends, in which all of my sin and all of your sin has been transferred to you, to Jesus. And He has bore it on the cross already in Gethsemane. He was crying out to God in prayer. And for the first time in His life, the Father did not respond. For the first time, He was not experiencing the Father's smile, but rather the Father's rejection rejecting Him for our sake. And then when you believe in Jesus, all of Jesus' righteousness, all of His worth, all of His honor, all of His blessedness, all of that is transferred to Jesus to you. St. Paul says that God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. A righteousness that comes not from what we have done, but which our faithful Savior Jesus has credited to our account just as your guilt and shame, and my guilt and shame, and there's an awful lot of it, has been transferred to Him so that you bear your sin no more. It has been born for you and He has borne it and taken it all the way to that hell in which God Himself shut Him out from His presence so that you, friends, might receive heaven in His place. It's the great exchange. It's the heart of the Gospel. It's what Martin Luther called the core ecclesia. Uh, they even called it the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. And Jesus is coming back. He's going to come back to make it right. And when He does, friends, if you know Him, He is going to wipe every tear from your eyes and there will be no more sin and no more sickness and no more death and the old order will pass away and a voice from the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. Verse 10, Jesus will be glorified in His holy people. He will be marveled by all those who have believed and this includes you because you believed. Friends, that's the assurance that Paul wants his readers to have. It's an assurance that He wants you to have. That you can know that you will stand before Him. That Jesus Himself will carry you across to the other side. And you will be with Him, seeing His face, forever experiencing what we were intended to have in the beginning, living coram Deo before the face of God in whom alone we have life. This is what sent Jesus to the cross. As a Savior, as a friend, as the lover of your soul. In the 1988 movie, U.S. Marshals, Tommy Lee Jones played a U.S. Marshal on a plane full of convicts. And there's a point at which the plane has crashed and it is sinking into the river and inside all of these convicts are strapped. They're, they're chained up inside as this plane is sinking deeper and deeper into the river. And so Tommy Lee Jones, U.S. Marshal, helps off first the officers and then he helps off all of the crew each time going back in to the sinking plane, risking his very life for their sake. And then he starts pulling out the convicts. 
going into the water to set them free, to bring them out so that the guilty, the unworthy, the shamed, the violent, the offenders might live. And as the plane is going all the way down to the bottom of the river, he turns to go back in for one more and a voice cries out, No! Don't go back in! Don't go to the bottom of the river! Not for them. Not for sinners. Not for criminals. They're not worth it. But he goes in and he sets them free. And He does it at the cost of His own life. Friends, that is what Jesus did for you. Jesus went to the bottom of the river. He absorbed the wrath of the Father so that you will never experience it. He took the full brunt of God's judgment so that you can get the full blessing that Jesus merited on your behalf. It's the Gospel, friends. It's the good news. Jesus Christ, the hell eater, who alone can set captives free. Friends, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord, who defeated death on our behalf, who, who conquered hell itself, who came that we might have life and might have it abundantly. Jesus who bound the strong man. Jesus who sets captives free. Jesus our Savior. Jesus our life giver. Jesus our Lord in whom we live. We thank You our Father and we consecrate to You the elements on this table, this holy sacrament that You might by Your grace make us to commune with the body and blood of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. We consecrate this to You now in His name. Amen.